0: The Big Late Presents. Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Bleathered, and my guest is Matt Zard Cousin. Matt was previously Jeremy Corbyn's spokesman and has been instrumental in bringing about more stringent regulation on betting companies in the UK through the campaign for fairer gambling. We talk about Matt's previous gambling addiction and the depth that he fell to as a result. We discuss the impact of gambling in communities throughout the UK. And Matt talks about working with Jeremy Corbyn in the run up to the general election, as well as both our thoughts on the current political landscape, both north and south of the border. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, take note of the advice Matt gives, and you can find relevant links and information in the episode notes. Don't suffer in silence, because people are there to help you. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Cheers. Matt, thanks very much for taking the time out to to come and have a chat. Oh,
1: thanks very much. Yeah, really good to be here.
0: Um, I suppose we'll, we'll, I've explained what we'll be talking about, but we'll get a wee bit of background on you. Early life, like where did you did you grow up near London?
1: I grew up in Essex in Southend, which is where I still live now, um, which is about an hour away from London. And uh, yeah, go on. Sorry, I
0: don't know if you'll believe this. I used to live in Southend. Did you really? I did, mate. I, I, Unbelievable! Um, no, I um, don't believe. I don't believe this. Know, why, honestly, why, why? Why? Why did you live in Southend? So I um, <laughs> first, and, and this might even shock even more. I first moved to Canvey Island in nineteen ninety six with my mum because my mum got a teaching job down south. So we moved down, wow. lived in lived in Canvey Island, and then moved to we were in Sea, and then Southend on Sea yeah, for a yeah. bit, and then and then back up. So we lived. You know, like Lee Broadway. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, I do. about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just lived off there. Yeah, oh. I live in uh,
1: in Shrewsbury. I grew up in Thorpe Bay, but uh, yeah, amazing. That's uh, incredible. So, wow, um, so when did you move back? Are you back in Scotland
0: now? Aye, I, I mean, we moved back after three years. So we were there. We moved summer '96, and then moved back summer '1999. So. Not a place well, Peter Pan's Adventure Island, all that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Like I, I really enjoyed it. We were back actually, well, I mean like oh, maybe eleven or twelve years ago cause, um my mum's part, I still got pals down there and stuff. So we came down for Christmas. They stayed yeah. Shoebury Ness as well. Um or is you is there two different places? Is there Shubury and Shoebury Ness? Well, it's the same place. Oh, it's yeah. the same place. I yeah, saw so- yeah stayed there but I, I like it I miss it I miss miss being back I fancy coming coming through next time I'm down in London quite a lot and I keep saying I'm going to have to go through to Essex and just have a look about because I still remember it so so clearly I even spoke we had an this is I'm probably opening myself up to abuse from like Scottish people here but I spoke with an Essex accent like the whole time I was there as well <laughs> like so, so so as to like try and fit in um, and I was like <coughs> Convincing, there was like people who'd lived here their whole lives, and they would say, They've like, nah, this guy's just from fucking Essex, mate. I can't do it anymore, <laughs> but like, I could do it back really then. Good, yeah, yeah. I'm totally opening myself yeah. up to you. Every time I say that, people go, Oh, I, you can fucking tell, like, Towie you, you're not you fucking idiot. <laughs> so it's uh, it, it left its impression. I'm a bit sorry, oh, yeah. this, this isn't an interview with me, this is an interview with you. Like, what was sort of just normal family life, I take it.
1: Yeah, pretty normal. Dad um, had a small business. Uh, Mum stayed at home, looked after the kids. Uh, Pretty normal kind of middle class, I reckon, I'd say upbringing. Mm. Uh, Yeah, nothing. uh, I mean, I I had a a decent, good childhood. I I went to a nice school, ended up going to, in Southend, as you may know, there's a grammar school system. So, Everyone takes the eleven, Well, not everyone, but most people take the eleven plus And then, when they if they pass the eleven plus, they go to the grammar school. So I was uh, I was fortunate enough to have passed the eleven plus and went to Westcliff High, which is a really good school in the area. So I had every kind of every uh, everything I could have wanted, really, from mm-hmm. from an upbringing.
0: And you ended up going to uni in Birmingham.
1: Uh, yes, I did. Um, so that was. In 2008, and I studied political science in Birmingham. And uh, uh, when I went to Birmingham, I went with a gambling addiction. I was already addicted to gambling by that point, and uh, that addiction had started when I t- just after I turned 16, and it was to the fixed odds betting terminals and betting shops, which. With the machines that you used to be able to bet a hundred pounds every 20 seconds on. And, uh, yeah, so I was fully addicted by the time I turned 18 mm. and, uh, yeah, just went off to university away from, from, you know, the place I grew up and away from my family, uh, in, in that kind of place, uh, of feeling like I just needed to gamble all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's absolutely, I'm not a gambler. But I've spoken to and I've I've created I've had episodes of this podcast where I've spoken to people who were seriously addicted to gambling. And it stresses me out just thinking about it because the, the analogy that was made was if you're addicted to drugs, there's only so, so much that you can consume before your body just packs in and, and shuts down and you pass out. Same with alcohol, kind of same with food, but with the compulsion to gamble, there's no limit. And there's no outward physical signs other than you know visible stress, but you don't look at somebody and go, "Oh, that's obvious." He's obviously got a gambling like addiction, and he's he's obviously gambled a lot of money. Um, How did you? What was your introduction to it? Because what I'm quite interested in is often I think maybe this is just me, but I think there's often a perception of who is likely to be a problem gambler, and it always seems to be. I don't know presented as a problem of the poor, and I'm not saying you were completely like rich living in Belgravia or West Kensington, but you know you you come from a from a decent background, quite comfortable and whatever what was when did you first encounter the fixed Dodge betting terminal uh
1: just just before I turned sixteen actually it was in uh, I remember I went into the shop to bet on exactly <laughs> I was I mean, my my friends were going into place bets, I was with a a friend. Uh, went in to put a bet on um, the Arsenal Man United game I think I bet on like 1-0 Armoury or something it was a hybrid, I think it finished 0-0 and uh, I put money in the machine while I was waiting with my friend and I didn't know what they were, just thought it was just like a bit of fun or whatever and obviously that's what people assume gambling products are but this was like high speed roulette it was inc- I found it incredibly addictive uh, just the first time I played, betting a one pound, two pound each spin. And uh, yeah. And from there I won like ten, twenty pounds or something. And then I thought, oh, you know, it's quite compelling, quite uh I felt like it was easy mm-hmm. to to get engaged with it. And that's how it started really. That's how that was my introduction to gambling. It was through this kind of high speed High, um, potentially high stakes product and that's what happens is you start betting low stakes and you, th- you feel like you, you know you're becoming more familiar with the product you feel like it might be easy, easy to win do you convince yourself and then you bet more and more and more as time goes on. so, so you bet up to you can bet up to 100 pounds and I did get to that point uh, about about a year into university. Uh, where I was doing a hundred pounds spin, and this wasn't money that I mean, yes, yeah, okay, I came from, as you say, I came from a re- uh, reasonably comfortable background. This wasn't money that I had access to or anything like that. This was money that I borrowed. Mm-hmm. I had sold on, uh, sold all my possessions to, to gamble uh, on eBay, sold all my everything I had really. Um, I was in a huge amount of debt. I had multiple student overdrafts, which wasn't wasn't allowed really. I had credit cards, I had borrowed money from friends, which is the worst. I think that's the worst out that you know, it's one thing borrowing it from a, a bank or something, and then, mm-hmm. you know, if worse comes to worse, you don't want it to happen, but you could just declare yourself bankrupt. But if you're borrowing it from your friends, then yeah. you know, you have to kind of honour that. So, and and then, yeah, so everything really everything I did, once I became addicted, I mean I think the best way of understanding it is yes, there's a of any addiction is your brain is programmed to reward you for things that you do that help you stay alive. So whenever you eat, you feel like that sense of reward because you just Mm -hmm. eat and eating is good because it means you can stay alive. What what addiction does is it reprograms the brain. So the brain thinks you have to do the thing you're addicted to to stay alive. Mm -hmm. So, Therefore, the, the, the compulsion that you feel, the necessary compulsion that you feel to eat because it means you can stay alive, you yeah. feel the same thing to gamble. It's like a hunger and you have to you feel like you have to do it. Um, it's so difficult to explain to people because, as you say, it's not a substance. It's not like you know, cocaine or whatever or, or alcohol, um, but it still affects you in a physiological way. Still affects your brain and the way that your brain functions, and to undo that takes a hell of a lot of time. And uh, obviously, it can be done. I don't want to like put a massive. I mean, you know, hopefully, I'm living proof of that. Yeah, but it, it it should be treated seriously, is what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It seems to me you wrote, I think, in a Guardian piece that it's sort of like crack cocaine in the sense that it's just wildly addictive and also euphoric when you're doing it as well. See, when you were doing it, what, I know you had the, the compulsion to do it and it affected you in that physiological way. Did you, were you doing it, thinking, I'm going to double my money and that's why. Did that ever come into it or was it just, I need to do this for the rush that I get? Um, because I watched, I think it was a Lutheran documentary where he's in Vegas and he's saying to this guy, like you were 20 grand up <laughs> and you're now 30 grand down and the guy's like, it's not winning the money; it's pressing the button, or it's rolling the dice. He's like, yeah. "That's where the thrill comes—not winning the money." And that's fucking dangerous because then that is just infinite. And you—if you, as long as you have access to tens of thousands, whether through borrowing or through overdrafts or whatever—you're going to continue to do that. It's that—that's really scary.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And I think when I was when I was recovering from addiction, I, I realised that telling myself the story about, oh, I'm, I could just make a bit of money or try to win a bit of money or try to win some of my losses back. This was all just trying to rationalise carrying on, carrying on with the activity that was clearly you know, very destructive and had a yeah. very negative effect on my life. So it was like, I think the money is often, that's often what's used as an, almost a smokescreen to justify Get what addicts say to justify it to themselves while they carry on doing it. And and you know the person in, in the Louis Theroux documentary that you mentioned has obviously realised that it's not about the money for them. It, they've, they've got to that point where even though they know it's not about the money, they're not trying to win money, they know that they're addicted to the anticipation, to pressing mm-hmm. the button, and then that moment between when you've pressed the button and you've, you've placed a bet to finding out whether you've won or not. So this is why products gambling products that are very very quick that have a very high event frequency like slots like fix-ups betting terminals one one spin of roulette every 20 seconds and even betting play when you can bet in play on football matches and bet as the game's going all of these things are actually more addictive
0: the uh, it's um i suppose let's look at the impact and the fixed odds betting terminals in more detail as well. So people use them, I suppose, use them for all different reasons. Everybody I know that uses them say, oh, it's easy money, you always win a wee bit. But in fact, the average fixed odds betting terminal user loses £192 a month. So, you know, it's it is not primed to let you win, is it really? Because I used to think that it was random, but I heard, I heard from someone who worked in Paddy Power or maybe it was William Hill, that he can see what numbers gonna come up before the person presses go. Like it's 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 predetermined and I I just think it it's throwing money away. Um I I personally I'd, Sorry on you go.
1: No, I just I think um look we don't know. We don't know what the algorithms are, we don't know what um how the random number generator works. There's very little that's understood about about these products and products that are online, where uh, there is not adequate oversight of how these games are played, whether they're played according to the rules or whether they're played in a, in a fair and open way, mm-hmm. uh, we just simply don't know. And the Gambling Commission, the regulator, just doesn't really have oversight of, of that to an adequate degree, given all the money that's been lost on these games. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but whether or not they're random is... Uh, they still make money even if they were played fairly. Because obviously, oh, yeah. if you're playing roulette, there's a house advantage. There's 37 numbers, but you only get paid back 35 to 1 if you, mm-hmm. if you get, say, if you bet one number. And that's that inbuilt house advantage means they'll always make money in the long run. They'll, and it's impossible for anyone to, to win money long-term playing casino games or slots.
0: With your... I'm keen to to focus on your experience as well to then understand why you started you know lobbying um you know the camp for the campaign for fairer gambling and you're you're not involved with gamban but i suppose that was the pinnacle for you or no not the pinnacle i suppose the the lowest depth when you lost Did you lose about two and a half thousand pounds and then started to really consider whether you could continue living
1: yeah yeah that was it it was it, um and i don't think it was because of the money it was just a feeling of i lost control
0: yeah.
1: and this was just that evidence, clear evidence that i just completely lost control and uh, just feeling like I couldn't, uh, I couldn't gamble anymore and when you're in that place where you're gambling, once you're addicted, you're almost gambling to, to escape the problems that the addiction's caused mm-hmm. so if you can't gamble anymore, if you can't do the thing you're addicted to anymore to, to kind of self-medicate from the reality, uh, then you obviously have to face up to, to where it's got you. And that's kind of where, you, where I ended up going into a really deep, deep depression, which culminated in me wanting to, to kill myself, which you know, if I'd worked off my parents, I probably would have done. So that's, yeah, that's where it can lead. And, it's, and I think it's, it, it's a mistake people often make to focus on the money because I think where there has been gambling related suicide and the charity Gambling With Lives have done great work highlighting this It's invariably it's young men in their 20s and, and these men, they lose not a considerable amount of money uh, but after that gambling session whatever it is it's the feeling of a loss of control it's a feeling of um, maybe emasculation there's, a, there's lots of feelings like uh, feeling like a failure, feeling like it's your fault, completely your fault.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think all of these things, centering the guilt and the blame in the individual has led to, has led to the, this increase in suicide among young men, uh, particularly related to gambling. And we're only just starting to understand the extent of it now. And yes, I think that that's what it was for me. Definitely, mm-hmm. it's all those factors. The, mo- the money you 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 know over the course of your life, you'll you, you earn the money back. But it's it, it it's, it's it's in that moment I think that, that, that people make those decisions.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, speaking as somebody who's not, as I say, not a gambler, even I started to think like put two and two together because people don't, they won't often say it. Will they? it's not as if someone will write a note saying, "By the way, just taking my life because of." This issue with the gambling so it's left to kind of guesswork but i started thinking there's no way that you know the sharp up increase of suicides i know there's a lot there will be a lot of factors but i don't buy the notion that oh you know chemical imbalance in the brain you know just couldn't go on it's like this there's, there's got to be a trigger point and for some it could be um Feeling that the life they see others living in social media is completely unattainable, or it could it could be loads of different things. And I've always I've thought gambling's got to be it's got to be one. I mean, what was the you know what was the the resolution for you? Did you go and speak to family, or did you seek sort of a, like help professionally?
1: Yes, I was able to get th- therapy, cognitive behavioural therapy. So when you're addicted to something, you you, you tell yourself that. Um, or your, your addiction is, to, I think it's good, to, it's, it's good to think of the addiction as having a life of its own almost, and it's telling you to do this thing mm-hmm. uh, and that it's good for you, even though you know, lo- vast evidence that that's not true, It'd tell you that, to do this thing. So, what the cognitive behavioral therapy is useful for is, is trying to understand it in different terms, it's trying to understand that addiction uh, and understand that it's very negative and it's having a very negative impact on your life, and just to try to see it differently. And look, I had three months' worth of of that, but it did take me another six months to stop from then. I did relapse a few times. Uh, It wasn't like a cure. It it did require a, um, a process, basically. So it takes a lot of undoing. And actually... You mentioned at the beginning, and it's so true, Like when you're addicted to gambling, you, you, you can conceal it from people. You can like put on a front that makes you appear normal, and you actually probably think that that's the one thing that's going to help you carry on gambling if no yeah. one calls you out on it or no one wants to try to intervene and you want to carry on gambling because you're addicted to it. So yes, you're absolutely right about that, but for me, that was much easier. That was a much easier thing to do um than the process of recovery process of recovery was the most difficult few years of my life Um, that was much more difficult than actually being addicted when you're addicted you're almost like in suspended animation it's like you just everything's like ticking over and you're kind of keeping things as they are like trying to kind of balance spin the plates really and you feel like you can do that and you're really not facing up to reality once you've got to face up to reality and rebuild your life. And, you know, you, you, your your brain is has to recover from that, has to rewire the neural pathways. I had ups mm-hmm. and downs. I had, I think, manic depression, uh, which I didn't have previously. I think I had, um, a, a, to, to this day, I'm on antidepressants, uh, which is absolutely fine by me, you know, mm-hmm. but, just, just, that's the kind of impact that it had. And I don't think that's been talked about a lot. It's like, gambling affects your mental health not just your financial circumstances
0: what would you i mean two two points i'd like to pick up on i suppose first of all what would you say to someone in terms of advice who is they've accepted that they have a gambling problem and maybe they think right okay i've accepted it so at the starting point they're thinking well the only way is up because it's going to fix it but in reality it sounds as if it's very much ups and downs and ups and downs and, and roundabout and side to side until you kind of get to a point of safety or distance I mean what would you say to them because they might really be struggling with that
1: I would say compared to when I gave up 10 years ago there's a huge amount of help out there now
0: mm.
1: and you know, I'd say go to the National Gambling phone the National Gambling Helpline get yourself referred for therapy specific gambling treatment whether that's through Gamcare or the National uh, Gambling Treatment Service, the NHS clinics that they are, the specialist NHS clinics for gambling addiction now to excellent. But there's, there's also other things that you can do, like financial transaction block. So if you've got a bank that has a, uh, this facility, you can switch on this financial transaction block that blocks gambling transactions, and you can't um, undo it without you know a few days' notice or something. Mm. There's also... Gamban, which I'm involved with, which is uh, I co-founded, which is blocking software. So you install that on your device, and it blocks all the gambling sites and the apps. And then there's Gamstop, which is a self-exclusion register. So you sign up to that, and then it should stop you from signing up to gambling sites uh, that are UK-based. So there's lots of things you can do to put the blocks in the way. Blocks are very important, but obviously. You may relapse. You may relapse on that journey, but it is a process. I think it's best mm-hmm. to understand recovery is a process. It's not a line in the sand. It's a it, it's a war of attrition. You got to kind of um, you know you're going to get knocked, knocked back every every now and again. That's probably inevitable. It doesn't mean you don't keep trying. Yeah. And and you know I think sometimes treatment can take a while to to uh, really filter through to to your brain and to the way that you understand gambling and uh, it just these things take time but but anyone who has stopped gambling your life will get better the longer this process goes on and I think that's the best way of looking at it one day at a time.
0: Yeah I think that's a great point about the relapse and you know there are times when you're you know you're going to falter you're only human you know it it doesn't mean that you've failed or that you then give up it's kind of like I always make these wee comparisons and wee analogies and it seems, like, flippant and then, therefore, sort of disrespectful to the subject. But even if you're on a diet and you have, I don't know, a McDonald's, you know, one day, you don't then just get... Or people do, like I do. But you don't just give up and say, oh, that's that fucked. That's that ruined. Like, I'm going to gain 20 stone. Like you know okay like you slipped up you had a mcdonald's it's not the end of the world are you right okay you slipped up and you bet 30 quid on fucking cheltenham it's not the end of the world so you know just keep going and realize that overall in the long term that it's going to be the best for you the gamban thing i think is great i will share the a link to that in the episode notes for anybody who would like to follow that up um i mean so it's a gamban app but i mean a great accolade you won Regulation Tech Provider of the Year at the Global Regulatory Awards 2019. So it's obviously working. It's obviously effective to get industry recognition, and it's having a wider impact. Have you have you spoken to anybody? Like sort of, have you had any testimonials for anybody that's used it and they said how it's helped them?
1: Oh yeah, plenty. I mean, with something like blocking software, it's a bit like nailing jelly at times. You've got constantly evolving technological platforms. You've got constantly evolving software updates and it's, it's difficult and it requires ongoing investment and a huge amount of time and, and effort from a very committed team that we've got thankfully and yeah I mean it, it's as good as it can be we're confident that it's as good as it can be and there is, there's been lots of people that have got got in touch with us one of them said we have literally saved his life there's mm. another one that said that I've been able to buy a car because I downloaded you. Know, gambling you know, how to save up for a car. So it's, it's, a, it's a ch- changing people's lives. And, you know, we're just part of the puzzle. We're part of the, yeah. the process of, you know, it's not, it's not a, a silver bullet.
0: The, I suppose as well, it's, it's worth looking at the other side. There'll be people who, and this is a sort of double-edged question. I don't, cause I don't think you want gambling banned. You don't want it taken away or, or for people not to have that right. Um, I don't have a dog in that fight. Like I don't give a shit. As I say, I don't do it. Maybe once or twice a year, I put like a fiver on a Celtic game. Like, see if I'm going into Celtic Park, right? And you've got the Lardbrook stall, and you've got the Pie and Bovril stall. And I've it's five to three, and I've only got five minutes, and I can only get one. I am always going for the Pie and Bovril, right? So it just doesn't occur to me. But I feel like there are probably people who can gamble normally. Um, and who can just who can enjoy it and you know have the fun of it like I know people they put maybe a pound on like an accumulator on a Saturday and they get a wee buzz out if it comes in and if they win a tenner great if they don't they don't care but then I suppose there are people who will think yeah I can gamble no problem doesn't bother me even though they're hemorrhaging like hundreds of pounds a month do you have anything to say to those people because I do know them and I do speak to them and they go out their way, they bend over backwards to say they don't have a problem while telling me that they've got a problem. So I'm in a bit of a rock in a hard place because I'm like, well, you're an adult. You can do what you want. You see you don't have an issue, but then you're coming to me every month telling me that you're ill and that you're taking payday loans to you know, see get you over the line and stuff. Do you have any words of wisdom for them?
1: Well... If the gambling industry was comprised, if their customer base was comprised of just the people you described there, which is mm-hmm. putting a few pounds on it once a week, you know whether it's an accumulator or whether it's you know uh, just a betting on a match that they're going to or whatever, the, then that wouldn't be a problem. That mm-hmm. would be fine. You've got a mass market product then where everyone's losing a small amount of money that they can afford within their means. Now, Unfortunately... <laughs> That's not how the gambling industry operates. The gambling industry derives, as the House of Lords Investigation Select Committee uh, found, 60% of its profits from 5% of the customers. The vast majority of its profits are coming from people who are addicted or who are at risk, showing signs of addiction. Yeah. So therefore, um, if you've got a business model that is effectively based on causing a huge amount of harm to a very small proportion of people, that's an unsustainable business model on a number of levels, yeah. politically unsustainable, socially unsustainable. It's uh, commercially not really a viable business model long-term. How can you keep getting new customers all the time because the customers that you're relying on are going broke or taking their own lives in the worst cases? Mm-hmm. So this is this is not... Uh, so what I would say to the people that, you, uh, that you've mentioned is... If you're a winner, if you win long-term, if if the com- these companies' algorithms detect that you're, uh, you're not profitable to them, yeah. then they will close or restrict your account. So if you are able to get an edge over the bookmaker somehow, say if you know a lot about, I don't know, table tennis or something, and you're able to actually win long-term, yeah. they will identify that and then they will restrict your account. So they're only interested in people that lose, and you know this is the thing. They're only they're only they're only ever going to market to these people. They're only ever going to entice these people with bonuses because they know that they're going to lose long term. So yeah. I would say that it's 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 a it's a pointless endeavor. That's what, the way I would frame it. To them, yeah,
0: <laughs> that that fucks me off beyond belief. I see that now and again on social media, and I don't always understand it. I'm like. I always look at it and think, "You, you must have done something wrong if you've been restricted." But then I've, i realised it's like, no, you're just winning. So like, imagine you go into a casino and you know they treat you like royalty because you're losing all sorts of money. But then you start winning, they hold a gun to your head and say, "Get out of my fucking casino!" You'd be like, "What? Like how?" So basically, I'm only allowed in here if you win. You know, like it's, yeah. it's just absolutely obscene that that that's allowed. That is absolutely crazy. I
1: know it's not. It, it's not gambling, is it? It's. <laughs> I know. It's you're paying them. It's it's, 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 it's it's legalized theft. That, that's that's kind of what it gets. It's got to. It's got yeah. to the point where it's not fair, fair. If it's if it's a gamble, then you actually you should have a chance of winning. Yeah. Um. So I mean, if, if they if they had to be honest in their advert, I don't believe I don't think they should be allowed to advertise to be honest. But I mean, if they had to actually be honest, the disclaimer should be not when the fun stops, stop, but. No one can win long term, by the way. We don't allow it. Uh, then we'll see how many people they get to sign up to their sites.
0: Why Why don't you, um, for the campaign for Fairer Gambling, why don't you start doing, like, adverts that look very similar, like create posters that are very similar to well-known bookmakers and just do, like, honest adverts? So, like... You're never gonna, but you know, like all smiley and jovial, like a Ray Winston type character, even talking over a video, saying like, "You're never gonna fucking beat us, no matter what you do." Like, just be honest and let people see it here, like this is the reality. You know, the fact that with the fixed odds, I'll, I'll call for the purposes of being succinct, I'll refer to them just as teas from now on. But the fixed odds, yeah, Ausbe- yeah. yeah, yeah fixed odds, better but the FOBTs, they've multiplied like enormously the last ten years, and they're now. The big. Would you say they're the biggest source of income for betting companies? Because the last year they generated two point two billion pounds in one year, and that's an increase of about six hundred well, million since twenty fourteen, which is insane.
1: So the so the fog teas uh, in betting shops they were the most lucrative gambling product until the maximum stake was reduced from hundred pounds down to two pounds right. in April last year which by the and way was as a result
0: was as a result of you lobbying we have to, we have to um, point out so you, you were hugely influential in getting that pass so well done
1: is your mattress making noises it never used to or is it sagging causing you to then it's time to get a
0: new one get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress, prices start at just four hundred and ninety-nine dollars, and you get three hundred and ninety-nine dollars in accessories thrown in, a three hundred and sixty-five night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to nectarsleep.com.
1: Oh, thanks very much. And though, and, um, and and now the the most lucrative product is is the slots online, so that they generate alone about two point two billion. Uh-huh. Uh, which is uh, huge money. People don't realise that. I think that a lot of things about these types of games are unlimited stakes. There's no limits to what you can deposit into an online gambling account. Some of the sites allow up to a thousand pounds a spin on these slot games. I mean, it's just Fucking in up. another dimension. It's it, it, the if you ever if you ever um, unfortunate enough to go to these industry conferences as I do to look at what they're doing uh what if you know what their plans are it's like I'd, it's like a bubble that is insulated from the outside world almost they're mm-hmm. so out of touch with the public with people's actual circumstances in this country 15 million people have less than 100 pounds in savings i mean that's the economic situation that we're in at the moment it's going to get worse now after the pandemic and mm-hmm. the recession that's coming and the joblessness. And the fact that the industry now we are going to go into this gambling review and they're going to defend unlimited stakes online is just, you know, I, I don't want to interrupt my enemy when they're making a mistake. You know, they, they, <laughs> by, by all means, please. Because all they're doing is just looking like they're completely out of touch. They've, they've got no idea. And it's no surprise really, they've just got obscenely wealthy in the last decade uh, due to a failure of regulation.
0: What's the name of that woman? I just think it's normal. What's the name of the woman that owns Bet 365?
1: Oh, Denise Coates, yeah. Um, I think the highest paid female CEO in the world.
0: How how really (laughs) how does she sleep at night? Apart from on like Egyptian cotton sheets and like a gold plated bed, obviously. But, like, how the fuck does she sleep at night? Like, how much money do you need? Because you can't spend that. How much money do you need? And you know that it's in people's misery. Like, you know that it is. A thousand pounds a spin. And it's like, there are, there are so many different aspects. But let's talk about the, the the how the working class are preyed upon. Because if you walk through the east end of Glasgow, or if you're in a place called Shettleston or Parkhead Cross, it's bookies, bookies, Chinese off license, bookies, bookies, criminal lawyers, bookies. It's nuts. You walk through an affluent area in the west end of Glasgow and Hindland or Byers Road. I remember I made this point. So you walk through there and you you you, you don't see any. And I remember some fucking arsehole bending over back wasn't going, no, no, there is one. And you're like, Yes, thanks for making my fucking point. There's one. Right, like, whereas there's like a there's like a row of them. And I always wonder, yeah, yeah. even in there's a street in Glasgow, Gordon Street, and it's Lard Brooks, William Hill, and I think then Paddy Power, and then Betfred, four next door to each other. And you're like, right, who's first of all, who's given them permission to all be there? Somebody at the council's given them permission, so questions need to be asked there. Secondly, why do you need that many? This is a genuine question. Do people just have their own preference to which one they go into, do you think? Well, so that's that. They that's they, ridiculous. they have
1: the reason that they have so many. The reason that they have sometimes you even have a paddy power opposite a paddy power or whatever. And the reason for that is they were only allowed four fixed odds betting. Sorry, four tees per shop. So they ah. had more shops, and and they all clustered together because uh, they their primary activity, the thing that they were making the most money from, was. Uh, the machines so if there's a, a limit on the number of machines per shop it didn't matter that they were all clustered together in the kind of more high footfall areas but there is no question they targeted more deprived parts of, uh, of towns and cities there's absolutely no question about that
0: because i've been there like i've been in that position i have been penniless i've been poor i've not had money or i've struggled to you know when i was like 1920 i've struggled to be able to get electricity i've been in asda and had to do the maths in my head, like, can I afford to get this Twix? <laughs> like or like what do I need to swap around? I, I've been there and know what it's like. Um, and I remember even at times thinking, maybe I could go into the roulette machine if I can I could write, okay, I can sacrifice a fiver and maybe I can turn it into twenty five quid. And then that means that I'm I'm fine. And unfortunately for me, that was a short period and I think that everybody goes through, I'm not going to call it poverty you know most people from where I come from at a time you're going to live sort of sparsely so I know what that's like and I just feel then that, and as stating the obvious it's hardly like groundbreaking fucking sociology here for me but people are going to see that and they're going to think right I need to try and elevate myself, I need more money here is a way in which I can do it and that is why they absolutely flood these working class areas with them it's a taxation on being poor as if being poor isn't ex- expensive enough to then have these companies that are absolutely preying upon you and probably now is a good time then to move up i absolutely fuck these companies see now that i'm thinking about it because it, it doesn't enter my head as much because it's just not my thing but when i focus on it i just like how fucking dare you How how dare you and there has to be tighter regulation. And it takes us on nicely to a Guardian piece you wrote a couple of weeks ago on how Britain's gambling laws didn't anticipate smartphones and the ease of access and temptation that would bring about. I mean, where do we even start with describing this situation and how do we start to rectify it?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, when gambling was first legalised formally in Britain in 1960, uh, there was a recognition that the more addictive products like roulette. Roulette, by the way, has been around for centuries. It's been refined yeah. over centuries to be as addictive as possible. The Dostoevsky, who wrote uh, Crime and Punishment, uh, like he had a, a book called The Gambler. He, it was about him, but it was you know, written in the third person sort of thing. So he was addicted to roulette. Uh, this, is, this has been a game that has... It was at one point, the only place you could play roulette was in Monte Carlo. That was the only place. They were, it was banned all over Europe. We, we then, in 1960, okay, we knew that there were casinos. There were casinos that were operating. Lots of them. We formally, formally legalised casino games, but we said, okay, you can only have this game in casinos because it's addictive. Same with blackjack, same with slots. Uh, but we're going to reduce the number of casinos. There's way too many. There's far too many of these places. This is is going to be a problem if they're they're so accessible. And we get to the point now where in 2005, they they relaxed the regulations. Um, But what they didn't do in the 2005 Gambling Act is um, have provisions to regulate these same games online. And you think, well, if the principle of the 1960 Act, which was correct... Was Mm. to say, this is an addictive game, we're gonna limit access to it, and we're gonna make it difficult for people. You know, if people wanna go to a casino, they have to sign up, and then there's a 24 hour calling off period, and all this sort of stuff. That's what used to happen. You couldn't just walk into a Mm. casino. And then for some reason, we've decided that actually, if it's been played online, then that doesn't matter. When actually, we should have been saying, okay, if it's gonna be accessible in everyone's house, never mind everyone's phone wherever they are in their pocket Yeah. then we need to regulate this more, we need to make sure that there are controls on stakes and prizes we need to make sure that there are proper affordability checks, we need to make sure that the, um, these companies are properly regulated and you know they're based in Britain and they pay tax in Britain and we didn't yeah. do any of that, we just said anyone wherever you're based you can offer gambling to the British people and that's mm-hmm. fine it doesn't, matter if you, it doesn't even matter if you're based in Gibraltar or Malta. You can offer roulette uh, unlimited stakes to anyone in Britain. And I just think, what are we doing? Why are we allowing a situation where billions of pounds, and we're talking about for online gambling, five billion pounds last year, is going out of the country a lot of the time. Most of it's going out of the country. And left in its wake, the people whose lives have been utterly devastated and I just think, what is the point of this? You know, know. I'm not against. I'm not against gambling. People want to gamble, as well, but like it's, it's the way in which it's been offered that's the problem, and that's kind of what we're yeah. trying to address now.
0: It's like if you're going to allow that to happen, at least get tax money off it. It's like at least, at least tax them. Say, right, okay, you can do what you want, ruin people's lives, but we're taking 17.5 <laughs> percent or whatever it is you want to take just absolutely fucking mental yeah even you know in the way in which they can bombard you you know you get emails texts you know the targeted advertising on social media like there is no escaping it so it does make it more difficult i mean what what can be done in order to tighten that do you think and is there actually a feasible um end goal to try and get the government to do something
1: yeah, so I mentioned briefly about how in 2005 the government relaxed the regulations. So basically before yeah. then, there was something called, um, un- so there were allowed gambling, but no stimulated demand. So basically you couldn't try oh, yeah. to encourage people to gamble. So anyone who wanted to gamble could, but there was no, so therefore under that, advertising was prohibited. Bonuses, inducements, offers, all of that stuff. And that changed after 2005. So now we've got a situation where more than half of the teams in the Premier League are sponsored by gambling companies. We've got uh, advertising during Premier League matches. We've got uh, ridiculous affiliate marketing and bonuses that are targeted to people that are likely to be uh, interested in signing up to gambling accounts online. You can't move for for digital advertising, it's actually gone up threefold since the lockdown. So all of this, all of this, I think, I think we have to move away from looking at gambling like it's just any other leisure product, like it, like as if it's just sport or you know, something. People, do. it's it's a it's a very unique product in the sense that people can get addicted to it very easily, and they mm-hmm. when they get harmed by gambling, they affect not just themselves, but their family, sometimes their workplace, their community. So we have to look at it in that sense from a public health perspective, and yeah. move back to, to, you know, thinking about it, um, uh, thinking about something. that's not something we should encourage, and that's kind of where we want to get to, really. Uh, not not prohibit gambling. I do mean, I don't think that's the solution whatsoever. It, it, but if you're going to legitimize it, then it ought to be regulated properly.
0: Mm-hmm. It makes it makes a lot of sense. Um, if you're somebody listening and you feel that you want to take the step to change things, or you want to exclude yourself, or to I don't know, start making life better, then check out the episode notes as I mentioned earlier uh, for links to GamBan. Uh, there's also I'll try and share some Gamblers Anonymous things. If you listen to the James McGuire interview before, you'll know um, how much James advocated for that and how much that helped him. So definitely worth checking out. Um, would I be I just tried to search there because I typed in Denise Coates, Tory donor to work, because I thought, hmm, that sounds a wee bit textbook to me. But it seems that she's donated to the Labour Party. Do you know anything about that?
1: Yeah. uh, Peter Coates actually donated to Keir Starmer's leadership campaign. So they are are historic Labour donors. Um, The Conservatives, actually, I mean, they reduced the maximum stake on fixed-onspected terminals. Obviously, it was a, very long campaign and a lot of pressure yeah. was was built, but they did do that. And Tracy Crouch, the minister, did good a great honor. job. Of yeah, good honour. And um, yeah, I, I think that they they've committed to a gambling review, and I think yeah. you know we, we're just going to approach that in good faith. And we hope we hope that they will mm-hmm. make the right decisions. Really, so yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. there's a lot of reasons why we've, we're in this mess, uh, but I always think it's good to kind of just think about how we can solve it really
0: um i try, I I try my best yeah i try my best like in terms of politics not to just always go Tories bad labor good right wing <laughs> bad left wing good do you know what i mean and uh i mean it seems it was the the labor government then if it was in 2005 that re- relaxed the the restrictions you think mm, make it make sense please um, and yeah. then the Tories doing that you kind of think okay good on you it's like very good and then but then the Coates family donating to Labour is like make it make sense <laughs> like I don't understand because they, <laughs> no, seem, I know. I know. they seem like counter counterproductive to each other but I suppose that's life politics isn't just two sides well, of I one aspect like.
1: one of the problems you got we've got sure is in the Labour party you've got a lot of MPs that actually represent the working class, but who are not working class. And mm-hmm. so they try to second guess what working class pursuits and interests are. And in, in, inevitably, the, the propaganda from the, the gambling industry, this don't, don't, don't spoil the working class's fun. That's kind of patronising like uh, narrative about how this is, you know, the working class, they just love bingo and they love going down the bookies and you shouldn't take that away from them. Labour MPs, I'm, I'm sad to say, fought for that. Uh, yeah. Many of them have never been in a betting shop without having gone with, you know, an industry lobbyist or whatever. So, yeah. so I think that 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 goes some way to explaining it. But I think that that attitude's changing
0: now. I'm picturing like some Labour MP being in like I don't know a betting company's offices, like a glass-walled office. And, like, as they're watching a presentation, like, in the background, you see, like, I don't know, two guys turning up a Victorian chimney sweep by his ankles and, like, shaking him till his coins fall out. Because that's kind of just, like, what it's like while he's been told. No, no, this is, they they love it. Like, no, I don't, like, for some guy pure wailing, like, please, my wife's left me and I'm fucking going to lose my house. Like, look at him, he fucking loves roulette. Like, you don't want to take this away from him. Like, fucking hell. Jesus. Um, your involvement, <laughs> your involvement with the Labour Party as well. Let's talk about that. Spokesperson for Jeremy Corbyn. Fucking hell, that's so cool. Talk me through how that came about and like what what you did.
1: Oh right, okay. Um, so I yeah, I was working for the campaign for fair gambling, and, and uh, in early 2016, I applied for a job, and the job came up for Jeremy's spokesperson, and uh, yeah got the job through conventional means had an interview and all that sort of stuff and then um uh started in may june 2016 and we were very very uh i realized quickly that we were very under resourced in the Mm -hmm. leader's office there wasn't the support given to jeremy corbyn by the party that previous leaders had had and therefore i was doing a lot of things that perhaps i wasn't expecting to be doing i was i took Mm -hmm. on quite a lot and um uh, it was incredibly intense. I had seven days a week, 20, 20 hours a day sometimes. you know, It was very, very intense and didn't really have any life outside of it. It was uh, mm-hmm. a, a huge commitment and the, the kind of pressure, pressure that Jeremy Corbyn was under because he was a very different type of leader. He was a, very much in the anti-establishment mold. The, yeah. the pressure that he had a result of that from, from the media, from his own MPs, from, you know, it, it was unprecedented. So that, it was incredibly challenging, but very, very good learning curve. I mean, like, to be honest with you, every job I'll ever do now will just be really easy compared to that.
0: So <laughs> yeah, I can it imagine?
1: <laughs> it, the, the demands of it and what, uh, the commitment that was needed and the, the, the amount of decisions I had to make every day was, Mm -hmm. you know, I never have to do that again, really. There's no other job like it, in in communications anyway.
0: See, when you sent your cover letter, like, for like applying for it, did you just send, like, a picture of Che Guevara to try and get their attention so you can get yourself (laughs) in the door?
1: Well, it's actually funny you should say that, because when I um, applied, I I didn't really have much experience in, like, the organised left. So it's like, who's this guy? I just, I had my own work experience and I had my own know So the interview was like, they were sort of trying to sound me out, like, okay, you're obviously um, you know, qualified for the job and everything. And, you know, we, we had a relevant experience and all this sort of stuff. But like, some of it was like, okay, so what have you done on the left? And it's like, I had to sort of prove my leftist credentials. That <laughs> <stuff>. so, <laughs> um, which wasn't difficult. So.
0: Yeah, just take you out on a night out and get you to argue with some Tories in a bar in London or something. <laughs> Yeah, what do you I think, think actually
1: uh, when, I, when I was when I, I worked for an MP in in 2011 2012 time, and I tweeted about I, made, um, I tweeted something about the Queen uh, about the Queen being a benefit scrounger or something, and uh, <laughs> it got it, it it caused a massive uh, controversy and it ended up being the Daily Mail and uh, <laughs> uh, and Labour aid caused Queen benefits scrounger. And that really helped in the interview, uh, referencing that. no way. That's
0: hilarious. That's kind of like, what kind of fucking headline is that? It's kind of like saying Labour aid says water is wet. She has a fucking benefits scrounger. Like, do me a favour, sons are pedo and they still get away with all sorts. What do you think about Keir Starmer?
1: I think he has got elected leader of the Labour Party on the basis that you carry on Corbyn's policy platform, and effectively be a better salesperson for that. Mm. But I don't think that that reflects his politics at all. And I think that lots of people who voted for Jeremy in twenty fifteen, and then again in twenty sixteen, are going to, mm. and then voted for Keir are going to be very very disappointed. I think that they are going yeah. to move quite quite you know, substantially to the right.
0: I um, I, re- I was reading a thing, and it was like. Keir Starmer and the Labour Party's claims. It was like 10 claims and then 10 very solid examples of proof that they hadn't done that. And in fact, they either hadn't done it or had done the opposite. Um, I think I just... I'm kind of just accepting that Britain as a whole is right-wing as fuck and that anything even slightly left of centre is deemed completely radical because i was talking to somebody the other day and he was like aye but no labor won a landslide and i was like aye but it was fucking tory light let's be honest it was just like an alternative to you know john major's sort of government that wasn't doing too well it was tory light i mean let's be honest he did some good things but it was tory light it's probably thatcher's dream i would say that's probably very controversial somebody a lot smarter than me might dissect that but that's how i perceive it and my perception cannot be changed it might not be factual um yeah but, yeah.
1: No, but I, th- I think i think i think you've got a point though because look some people say okay kia moves to the right and wins an election isn't that uh, that's good isn't it and that's yeah, I, I think yeah, rest- i can
0: go back left
1: well, well exactly this is the thing it's, it's a very westminster bubble way of looking at it. I, i'm interested in what's good for the country what's good for people and oh, yeah. at the end of the day if you're not going to win on a platform that's going to address the climate crisis. The economic crisis, the generation, the intergenerational injustice that exists, the housing crisis—you going to address those things? I don't really care. I don't really care if you win. I don't care who's in government. So, yeah. you know, that, that for me is like—you have to be able, to, I think, to sort these problems out that this country faces. You've got to be able to take on vested interests. You can't just get the approval of the establishment. And effectively, yeah. what we've got is a kind of. We've got two sides of the establishment facing off against each other. We've got the liberal establishment, the civil service. We've got like what I would call the establishment revolutionaries, which are like the Vote Leave campaign. And you've got uh, the people in government at the moment, the people in government want to take on the civil service um, yeah. and, and reform. and reform. But still, both camps, both sides of the establishment are loyal to, to capital and are loyal to, to corporate vested interests. And you know, Jeremy Corbyn, would have changed that, would have
0: shaken that up, but it just shows mm. that, you know, it's how difficult it is to do that. Yeah, it is. Disappointing. I was there, that see the night that parliament was prorogued. Were you, did you literally work with them right up until, um, the changeover of leadership? No, I was, there, I was before? there for,
1: I was there for a year, so like, the first, right, okay. first election,
0: first election, yeah. Right. I was there the night that they prorogued parliament, as I, Guest of our Labour MP, and uh, I was actually in the chamber, so not in the the viewing gallery. And I sat behind, so I was f- facing like the Labour benches, and um, I was behind the Tories. They all just sat on their phones. I understand, right? If you're on if you're on Twitter and stuff, because you're getting live reaction. I get that. That's the way the world works now, and it's instant reaction. But some of them sitting on iMessage, some on Facebook. I could see. I was, like, I was I was meters away from them, and. Uh, There's a wee guy, oh, what's the name of that wee guy? It was... Just a quick interjection to say that while I was thinking out loud, trying to remember this guy's name, um, I said something that, although I know it to be true, I don't really fancy getting the lawyer's letter through the door, so I decided to take it out. It's definitely true, though. I can't remember his name. Scottish guy. He was, when even Joe Swinson, like when uh, Lib Dem leader Joe Swinson was speaking, not so much her, but more so with Labour. And always with the SNP, this wee guy was running about barking and he was going ruff, ruff, rah, and shouting and screaming so they couldn't <laughs> be heard. And even like, even John Berkow, the speaker, was like, he said something along the lines of, You're preventing democracy, uh, parliamentary democracy from taking place because you are prohibiting the the electorate from hearing what is being said. And that is just completely blocking any democracy. And I was just sitting there incensed, like, f- livid, angry, like, just doesn't fucking cover it. And uh I leaned on, like, the gold bar just as I was watching and some guy dressed in, like, a, s- a costume for the 1600s came over and he's, oh, and he's like, will you take your hands off of that bar and show respect for the parliament? And I was like, <laughs> are you fucking winding me up? Like, I'm watching... Um, I was like, I'm watching MPs barking like dogs, so that people watching at home can't hear what's being said. And you're telling me to show respect yeah. for Parliament. Have you seen uh, that film with Michael Douglas falling down? No, I've not. That's Where he basically just goes on a mad fucking shooting spree. I just felt as if I was going. To, I wanted to turn into Michael Douglas. I was just livid. I've never been so angry in my life. And I just was like, what should have been it was fascinating it was a really fascinating thing and i was one of like six people like who weren't elected members sitting in that chamber and it was really interesting for that perspective and i was there till about half two in the morning but i just walked away and i was like that's fucking broken and i was like i don't think that's ever actually been functional it's only just now that we're that we're realizing
1: yeah definitely i think that it it, um, the whole place, I felt, was designed to uh, make people who well, make people feel uncomfortable, make people feel yeah. like they had to be deferent towards the, the processes and the, the, manner, the manner in which it conducted itself and conducted business. And it was just, it, it doesn't feel like when you're there, it feels like you're in a museum. It doesn't feel like you're at a place that's there to serve the people it's very very strange and yeah
0: really the whole thing needs to be rethought from scratch we were we get told to leave and then we're all standing outside um, seeing that uh, what do you call that the bit where you're between the House of Lords and the House of Commons or the House of oh, Commons Central and Lobby. then Central Lobby we're standing there and then I can't remember what they said but it was like make way for the Black Rod and all this <laughs> and, like, so I was watching it and I met this Irish guy Connor great guy and uh, we were sitting talking, and as she went, make way for the black rod, or something along those lines, and I went, this is fucking embarrassing, man, and then straight away, some other guy dressed like a dickhead, with a feather and a mad hat, he looked like Dick Whittington, and he's like, um, he's like saying, you'll be ejected, I'm like, well the fuck mate, I'm like, I've not done it, I know I, I know that I'm allowed to be here, I think that's mad, that you, anyone can just walk in there, and wait for like, your MP to come in, I know you have to get permission, and all that, but, it's quite nuts, um, I like think somebody started shouting, "You're a disgrace," and they get dragged out. So they took the heat off of me because I think they were going to throw me out because I said, "This is fucking embarrassing." Um, but overall, just start to finish, it was just a lot of fucking shit. And uh, I, yeah, I, I don't enjoy it. What did did you um, did you ever find out Jeremy's thoughts on Scottish independence or the possibility of another <laughs> referendum?
1: Well, he wouldn't have stood in the way of another referendum. If he was prime minister if that was voted for. Uh, so, look, I think I'm, I'm in favour of it. Why would you want to be in the UK?
0: Exactly.
1: Uh, I was just, yeah. Good luck. Good luck to you. All the best. I mean, I, will just, and it, there will be another. There will be another one. There have to be.
0: There have to yeah, be one. I think. I- I think that they're now starting to realise. And, I mean, the sands are shifting. But it's funny when you get people saying, no, because, uh, you know, we voted against it. And it's like, yeah, fucking six years ago when the landscape was entirely different. Like, so, so what? Will we just never have another general election ever again? Will we just never play the World Cup final ever again? Will we never vote for anything else ever again? Democracy is a... An ongoing, continuous process. I mean the landscape changes um to the point where it is unrecognizable to what it was. And, you know, you, you sort of reneging promises that were made, such as the only way to guarantee European Union membership is um to vote no for Scottish independence, then it's just it's ridiculous. I would hope anybody listening to this with just respect that that's my opinion. I'm not trying to sway anybody. Um, that's just how I see it and I'm allowed just as you're allowed to call it the way that you see it I'm allowed to call it how I see it um, <laughs> one other question Did, d- does Scottish Labour and you know, Labour UK just not fucking communicate because Richard Leonard said there's no way there's going to be another Scottish re- independence referendum and then Jeremy Corbyn said about a day later like no that's not the case Like if, if the Scottish people decide um there will be. That was just me getting a wee dig, and you don't need to actually answer that. I don't think you. you no, I think I think,
1: uh, I think Scottish Labour is um, very very pro the union and like like institutionally. And for Richard Leonard, obviously he, he he's on the left of the party, but obviously trying to corral. Very few Mm. MSPs and members that that, the Scottish Labour has, and and yeah, I mean, the position was as Jeremy said, we wouldn't stand in the way of it, and that that was the right position. Can't stand in the way of democracy, although we got the position on respecting the Brexit referendum result wrong, and that's why we were punished for that in various parts of England.
0: Yeah, Ah, well, maybe one day (laughs) things will be better. Fuck, man, I pure depressed myself now. <laughs> Sorry. That's <laughs> okay. like, oh, all right, one of your are downer? Uh, what, what kind of things, what is coming up, you know, in terms of to go back to the gambling, just as we round up, you've achieved a lot. I mean, to be, you're named as London Evening Standards are in the list of the most influential campaigners, which um, I suppose nice recognition to show that, that what you're doing is having an impact and it's being effective.
1: Yeah, it's nice. Nice, of, um, nice to make George Osborne's list, uh, who is obviously the editor of the Evening Standard. Thanks very much. Um, cheers, George. No, <laughs> cheers for that. Uh, no, look, it's nice. And we, we obviously won won the, the first campaign and, and we're confident the government's review of gambling is going to be broad. We're expecting the terms of reference for that to be in autumn. So then it will be a long process There'll be a review, there'll be consultations, there'll be the whole, as you've just alluded to, ridiculous legislative process going through Parliament. Um, We're looking at probably 2023, around that sort of time, where all these reforms will come in. But yeah, plenty of time to get as much done as possible.
0: Yeah, excellent. Well, well done and such great work. And don't ever let the bookies win, and that goes for, for people listening. Just to reiterate, you can find the notes and the notes for the, sorry, the episode notes, you'll find information on Gamban and any other relevant links that I can include. Um, is there anything, anything you want to touch on just before we finish up that I've, that I've forgotten that you think is, is relevant or pertinent? Just
1: if anyone uh, is interested in the campaign, if they could go to cleanupgambling.com and sign up there, that would be fantastic. And yeah, that's we're building a, quite a significant support base going into the review and
0: yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, smashing. And uh, you'll be tagged in things on Twitter so people can find you, but you'll also find um Matt's Twitter handle and in, uh, in the episode notes as well. So aye, again thanks mate for taking your time, really appreciate it, and, and thanks for sharing so much. Oh, it's been a
1: pleasure. Thanks
0: so much. Tell man, cheers matt. Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information, go to thebiglight.com From The Big Light
1: Studio